So check this out. I got word that Hulu threw this crazy party in Beverly Hills with literally all of the biggest reality TV stars. I'm talking about all the Bravo lebs, Candy Burris, Portia Williams, James Kennedy, Jax Taylor, even Captain Lee and Kate Chastain. Here's the genius part. If you want to find out what happened at the party, you have to watch the commercials. Yes, I know I'll be tuning in and then signing up for a free trial to get my favorite reality TV shows at Hulu.com. Better Call Saul Season 5, Episode 5, Dedicado a Max, is over, but we're just getting started here at Post Show Recaps. Hello again, everyone. I am Antonio Mazzaro, and I am thrilled to be back here again this week talking about Better Call Saul, and I'm once again joined by Josh Wiggler. Josh, are we going to do this? Are we going to uh, are we gonna go all in on Kevin Wachtel? Uh, I think we're going to go in on Kevin Wachtel, and uh, I... Uh, I, I was thinking that we would probably try and do as much of this podcast, uh, me impersonating uh, Kim Wexler, you doing your best, <laughs> Kevin Wachtel. Uh, but that might get confusing. For I got a lawyer. He's got four <laughs> lawyers. We're going to get out of here with these lawyers. Now, yeah. Kim. Now, Kim, I don't want to do that. I don't yeah. know. I can't do it. I uh, turned into Foghorn Leghorn very quickly. Th- Antonio, this is a great episode, I thought. I I yeah. loved th- I loved this episode a lot. I thought that this was a really really fab one of my favorite episodes of Better Call Saul uh, because it just had some of the greatest Jimmy and Kim moments. Even if like we're angling towards something dark, uh, and sadly Kim is not waking up to it nearly as fast as I would like her to. And sadly Kevin Wachtel is not waking up to it in the way that maybe he ought to wake up to it as quickly as he can. I think like our overall feelings of dread for uh, the collapse of Kim's relationship with Mesa Verde and and Schweikert and uh, all of the stuff with with Jimmy uh, is still it's still hanging in the air, uh, but it's just like even more slow motion than than perhaps I expected because like it's just hap- it's just not happening quickly enough. Uh, but th- there's still some like joy in watching Jimmy go to town uh, with with everything that he's pl- with the, all the different ways that he's like plotting against Mesa Verde, uh, the the big conversation that they have where they're impersonating Kevin, uh, even when he's like. Uh, would you like to go to the shower with me? <laughs> oh, I, God. Well, I believe I will. Kim, I believe I would. Like, there's just <laughs> so much great stuff in this episode. And the Mike stuff was fun. Really great episode, I thought. Yeah, very funny. Like, just so much funny stuff. I think the episode length is a little longer, right? So that certainly helps uh, coming in, you know, at the 50 minutes of actually a screen time, not just like right. a 42 minute, uh, one hour episode. So giving them the length to do that, it definitely gives the opportunity to uh, linger with Mike, for example, as he walks along a beautiful uh, country road there in Mexico, or just really spend the time with the funny, leaning into the funny with Jimmy and Kim in a 42 minute episode for example, when you get a montage, sometimes it can feel a little time wasty. Uh, in this particular one, I thought it, it, the pace was good. It was really funny. Uh, and again, just the, the overall, the fun, because the funny works, the drama really works. And you, you're talking about us heading to a bad place. I think that that really is an edge to all the funny. And, and so it is, it, it's funny, uh, but it's funny with a twist. And we're, we're definitely going in a bad way. And we definitely have a lot to talk about. Uh, where do you want to get started with this particular 
particular episode. The cold open uh, was not a uh, a cold open like uh, we have seen throughout this season. Uh, it was Mike waking up, kind of taking in his surroundings and walking down the country road and talking finally with the doctor. Uh, and so we we really started where we ended last episode with Mike. Uh, so that wasn't uh, wasn't like the cold opens we've got this season. Do you think it was particularly effective, or uh, are you are you on? Did you wish we were looking at ants on ice cream? No, no, I don't. <laughs> no, I'm good on the ants. I'm good on the bowling balls. Uh, I really appreciated the way that this episode started. And, and I think we're starting at the start, but I think we could also just like, let's talk through the Mike stuff right now, because I think he was he was one of the final points that we got to in our most recent podcast. Uh, and there's a really great Mike story that's being told this week. And as a result, uh, a really great Gus story, maybe not as illuminating as you and I had hoped to, uh, had hoped for as it pertains to Gus's backstory. Um, but the way that that relationship between Mike and Gus is building, I think, is fascinating. Um, I loved the open. I loved that it was it's it's just a scene you know it's just a piece of the episode this felt like a very rich episode to me uh it felt like an episode that was really honing in on characters in a meaningful way Uh, i thought that this episode had one of the best better call Saul montage sequences everything that jimmy is plotting in order to take down mesa verde and all the different ways that they're like sprinkling radiation on the ground and you know orchestrating archaeology digs and and all of this stuff and i better go make a call i need to make a call uh that was one of the best one of the best uh montage of the entire series, I think, for sure. Uh, and and I think that, that that standard is set, that tone is set right from the jump here um, with, with Mike being very Mike-like uh, by not wanting to stay put, being so smart to know that, like, yeah, this was Fring. Fring put me here. He's trying to get out of there. He sees that uh, that five kilometers sign. He's just like, it's like <laughs> he's bleeding from his side. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's bad. Yeah, Let, yeah. Let's let's stick with Mike for a second because I think we can transition from the Mike discussion into the the Jimmy and Kim discussion. I think there's a really interesting inflection point here. So Mike is is laid up. Uh, we know what happened with Mike last week. We don't really get the details filled in, but it is very clear. I think that he was being tailed by Victor Tias or someone from Gus's group. Like we've talked about uh, and that that they witnessed what happened with the street toughs that he got into a brawl with. They saw him get stabbed and they brought him to this place. Mike's question throughout. And it's a question that he's asking the doctor. It's a question that he's struggling with is like Gus Fring is a drug dealer. Why are any of these people working with Gus Fring? Like, why does the doctor do this? Why is the senora doing this? Why are any of these people involved with this guy? And more to the point, what does he want from me? Like, right. what, why am I here? This guy never does anything without a reason. I think that's part of the problem for Mike in terms of how he reads into everything that's happening down here in this country place. He does not see any of the innocence in it or anything good in it. He assumes that anything that's there is there because Gus is the kind of guy that does not act without a reason. So that everything that's there is some, there's some reason for it. Um, what Mike doesn't understand, of course, is the reason really truly probably is the dedicated to Max part and the fact that Gus Ring wants to do good things in the memory of what happened, and it is what makes him different from the Salamancas. But he's asking himself throughout, like, why am I here? What am I doing here? And then we ultimately do get the confrontation with Gus. How did you feel uh, that came off in terms of the effectiveness of, we talked last week on this podcast about getting Mike back on board with Gus, and what would it be that ultimately caused Mike to put aside the negative feelings about Werner and to get himself to the point where he was going to be a button man for Gus? Are we there yet with no. the simple word revenge? I don't think so, right? Like, I think, like, I think that he needs to illuminate more for Mike. 
right? Like, I think that, like, there there needs to be more for Mike to hear other than just revenge. Like, I think, like, they need to have more of a meaningful conversation. I think that this is the beginning of what it is that we were saying we needed. Uh, I think that this is a first step in that direction, but I don't think that it's nearly enough. Uh, just the fact that, like, Gus is saying, like, I want revenge the way that you wanted revenge for your son, basically, is, like, the, the unspoken piece of it. Um, yeah, it's enough to maybe, like... Uh, you had my curiosity, but now you have my attention. You know, like it's it, it's maybe that far. Uh, but now that he has his attention, we have to see if he can keep it. And we know he can keep it, obviously, because Mike is going to become Gus's button man. Um, but I think we'd, we'd need a little bit more. And I don't know what that involves. Like Gus Spring is not exactly um, a very revelatory guy, right? Like he's not right. exactly the most emotive guy around other people. Um but he is clearly going to some rather extraordinary lengths to turn the heel on Mike because he sees so much value in him. Is he somebody that he is going to realize he needs to indoctrinate him into the like the the necessity of his quest uh, of like the burning pits of fire that his rage was born in? And these are bad people, and what we are doing is actually evil, sure, but like for the right reasons. Like we're doing we're we're combating true evil by going up against the Salamancas. Um, is there is there something that he needs to to give Mike that's a little bit more than just that one speech at the end of the episode or is it enough for you know and i think that mike was intimating that it wasn't enough even though mike is he over the course of the episode he starts to become more fond of his scenario of, of, of his surroundings of his setting of, of the of the people who are taking care of him certainly is enjoying the food uh he's enjoying the work you know the the carpentry labor that that he's uh that he's you know he's fixing the house up uh he's fine with all of that um, but is that enough? Like, oh, so you're showing me that you care so much for the community. You're you're a good guy, Gus. Like, is that enough? I don't think so. We need more still. So does so does Mike. Well, and I, I just I'm what I would be so I would be surprised if we get more. I because of the reasons you just said. Because Gus Fring is so walled off. Because, for example, what he does with his personal grief is create literal walls and a village uh, around the dedicated to Max Fountain. Uh, and he does not let anyone in on the fact that this is a personal space for him. He, his only indulgence in that regard seems to be putting dedicated to Max on the side of that fountain. And again, just resetting it in case anyone missed last week, Josh. Do you want to reset? who Max is and sure. what Gus's revenge role in this story truly is about? Yeah, so Max was his partner in the initial operation uh, we see in, I forget which Breaking Bad episode it is, uh, but it's it's probably called Los Pollos Hermanos, I think. I think that uh, that's, but it might I, not be. I think no, I think that that's right. Uh, or is it just Hermanos? Maybe. Um, but it's it's Gus and it's Gus and Max. Max is his partner. They go to Don Eladio, uh and uh, Hector Salamanca kills Max uh, in front of Gus, and Gus collapses into into a heap in the way that. Walter White will eventually collapse into a heap when he watches Hank get executed. Um, and we don't know the full nature of the relationship between Gus and Max. Were they brothers? Like, were they uh, either literal brothers or as close as brothers? Were they lovers? Were they... Who knows? We, we, don't, we don't know because the show has really kept us at an appropriately, I think, frosty remove because of how frosty... Uh, how frostily Gus keeps us at a remove. Um, but I... I that, that's the character. And that is, that is where all of the vengeance that Gus has, this seething 
rage that he has for the Salamancas, for Don Eladio, uh, that fuels everything that he has ever done. Uh, that's where it comes from. And I think it, it was really interesting, like you said, Antonio, that like the, the Dedicado on Max um, is on like the side of the fountain that you wouldn't even see. Right. Like it's, it's right. facing away from everyone. Like it's almost like it's uh, a private thing just for Gus. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I was really hoping that this would be an episode where we would get like that full backstory. Uh, we obviously didn't. I do wonder if we ever will. I wonder if it's better left to our imaginations than to, to seeing it. Uh, I think that that could be an interesting conversation to have right now. Like, do you need to see that stuff? Like, do you need to know what happened in Santiago, for instance? Do you need to know who Max really was to Gus? Or is it good enough, even with this being like the prequel series, this is the opportunity to, to you know, uh, to illuminate that material if, if the show wants to? Do you need that? Or is it better left to just like sort of like the raw emotional vagaries? It, it it's interesting. I don't particularly need it, but I think I expect it. Uh, and I don't know. See where I'm at with this right now, and this gets into the spoiler of Breaking Bad territory. Just discussing Max in general does obviously. So if you're wondering who Max is, uh, this we're just going to discuss it in full spoiler realm here for the reason you know in the way that Josh just just did in and beyond. Of course. I think the biggest problems, the reason that Gus Fring is the guy who survives and it's not Max. Max is the chemistry genius, remember, who Gus pays for his education, trains him to make meth, and it is their pitch to Don Eladio that they could sell meth and not just cocaine uh, for the cartel. And they're giving away these supplies. The the supplies are good. Uh, Don Eladio gets the attention uh, because they're giving away these supplies. And it is Max that he executes. And we hear these references to this throughout with Hector, but the, the implication is that Gus and, and Max were gay, uh, right? That they were homosexual partners. Uh, at least in Don Hector's mind, that was the case. Right. Uh, and that is that is something, I, I think, not just for the, for the fact that Gus is Chilean, but the fact that Gus is implied to be homosexual by uh, the cartel, um, by the members of the cartel, whether it's Lalo, whether it's Don Hector, Don Eladio, whoever it is, um, that is something that offends Hector greatly. And that is something that marks Gus as an other and marks Gus as different. And that, more than anything, seems to be at least until I find out what happened in Santiago. Um, that seems to be what they reference by the Chilean, the, the guy from Santiago. They just see him as a homosexual and they see him as different and lesser, uh, somehow just not to be trusted for all those reasons. And that is their big reason for having a problem with him. That's as it stands right now. What we don't know is, was there something else that built his reputation? There was always an implication in Breaking Bad that he was maybe protected um, in some way, that he was part of a family. Uh, is that the reason he wasn't killed? We, we have had hints of that. But we have not had that confirmed. And so the question, I guess, is when you're doing a prequel series, are you interested in closing that loop? They have closed the loop on so many less important or less significant character notes from Breaking Bad, as I've joked about in this podcast, like we found out why Crazy Eight is called Crazy Eight. In that world, are we not going to find out what Gus Frank's true backstory is about what happened in Chile? I think we will. But do I need it? Not necessarily. It's enough for me to know that these guys are horrible people because they're simply treating him differently by virtue of them thinking or implying that he's homosexual. And that in and of itself is reason for them to kill someone uh, to get to get at him. They'll still do business with him. Uh, they'll take his money. Donald Audio is happy to take his money. By the way, moving meth now as their product, no problem. Uh, right. but, they, but they certainly will not uh, ever see him as their equal. They will always see him as different. Uh, and Gus will always be on a plot for revenge. Uh, it is... I 
I think, very chilling to end the episode with the word revenge. Uh, I am uh, reminded of the fact that Gus's pure, blind desire for revenge is ultimately his undoing. Uh, that is why he is where he is uh, when he gets into Walter White's ultimate final crosshairs in Breaking Bad. Uh, that is what does him in, is this desire to really take the knife into Hector Salamanca and to constantly be right in Hector Salamanca's business. Uh, the fact that he's kept him alive just as like a, like a spider with a fly. Um, these are the reasons why Gus Fring ultimately... Or a spider meets- in a bottle. Or Spider, and, oh, don't let's not talk about that. Um, that's that. That's why he ultimately ends up where he ends up. So it's chilling to end the episode this way. I'm wondering from you, Josh. I I am one thing I will say is just reminding myself of all the Max stuff and being absent. Great analysis seeing, on all of that, by the way. I, I I have nothing to add other than like I thought that that was that was fabulous. I appreciate it. I I want you to add um, this though. I, I am left after all of this thinking about that. Right, thinking about Breaking Bad, thinking about the backstory of Gus Fring, thinking about all of those things. Things. I am left very frustrated now at the ultimate ending uh, of Gus and Hector and how that story comes to end. I hate Hector Salamanca at this point, and not that I never didn't, but I truly feel like by framing it in this way uh, and reminding myself of Max and reminding myself of that ultimate horror and separating myself from Box Cutter and separating myself from Brock uh, and separating myself from everything that happened uh, with Jesse Pinkman and all the people people that are involved uh, with everything that, that becomes Gus Fring adjacent or the, the, the meth game adjacent. Um, I'm feeling very disappointed that Hector ultimately, quote, wins in this duel. Uh, now framing it this way, it, it's very upsetting to me at the end of this episode, thinking about how it ends. Has that changed for you at all? Or no, do you feel it's poetic no. and it's fine? Yeah, I think it's still poetic and fine because I don't know that Hector necessarily wins. So, I mean, like, yeah, he he gets to go out on his own terms more than more than Gus does. But he's in hell for years, for years because of Gus. Uh, Gus is, you know, able to, like, pull Hector's medical care at a point when Hector is improved just enough to still be recognizably Hector, but still trapped inside of his wrecked body. Uh, that he can only ring a bell to tell you yes or no, uh, that that is his only means of communicating. Otherwise, he's just a ruined husk of a man. Um, and that's by design. That's dark. You know, that's dark. It's, that's true. <laughs> it's very, very dark. Gus wins for years, for years. Uh, and it's ultimately his unquenchable desire for revenge that gets him killed. So it's it, to me, it's it's less that Hector wins and more that Gus loses. And I think that that works well within the tale of vengeance. Revenge never ends well, uh, even for the winner. For the winner in this case, you know, uh, revenge ends with an explosion. Um, but it also it it fits within I think the idea of if you're trying to fit like sort of better call Saul as a spot to flesh out the rich backstories of these characters who we know already, who even without better call Saul stand very, 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 very firmly on their own two feet. But this is an opportunity to just like, um, you know, flesh out the, you know, to to just like elaborate on the musculature and, and just like make it more of a, of a, of an animal, like a living, breathing thing. Um, and in, in that regard, I, I think it balances well with breaking bad as, 
all of these people have their, you know, the best laid plans and all of that uh, cannot account for a rogue agent, a rogue element. And what all of these people are barreling towards here on Better Call Saul is an ingredient that is not part of Better Call Saul except <laughs> as a ghost. Right. It's Walter right. White. Right. Uh, and so I think them like being so with, with such blinders on. Um, and never being able to take those blinders off and having such a laser focused vision on the one thing, whether it's for for Gus, it's, you know, it's the pursuit of revenge or for Jimmy, it's like the pursuit of reputation and screw you to the man. And this is what I'm owed um, with that being like their their North Star. Uh, and you can you can mainline that for me when it comes to Mike. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to figure out what that exact thing would be for him right now. Um, but for for those two characters, at least they're so steady steadfastly dedicated to those ideas that when something as profoundly dangerous as Walter White enters the equation, they cannot even smell it until it's too late. Um, so I don't see it so much as Hector wins so much as Gus loses. And I think that the story still works that way because he may be very justified in his fury towards Hector. He may be deeply uh, wronged culturally by how Hector and Don Eladio, uh view him um, and how you know the world may view him, this world that he is occupying. Um, and his, his vengeance, his thirst for vengeance is deeply relatable and understandable under those terms. But I think that his, his ultimate fate remains, a, a, the, the cautionary tale nature of his ultimate fate uh, remains more powerful to me, um, even with all of that in play. I think it just makes him a richer character for me. Well, I, Richard character is something that really resonates with me, and it resonated as uh, I was listening to what you were saying, because I think that speaks to the the power of the prequel. When you were saying characters standing on their own two feet in the course of Better Call Saul, uh, I that to me is it's a thing where it isn't just filling in a blank and saying, oh, we know now why Crazy 8 is called Crazy 8, right? Or this is where the $700,000 came from, or this is how he became an informant. It's not filling in story points. It's really richly rounding out the character of Gus Fring, who was already an incredibly interesting character in Breaking Bad, the guy that's cooking the paella or whatever, and talking about a family uh, that that we know or we believe does not exist in the context of this story. Uh, And having everything that he's got, like when Lydia Rodar Quayle in, in Better Call Saul says, if you think he's just a drug dealer, you have no idea. Um, using Better Call Saul to really continue to fill that in, such to the point that even though I've watched Breaking Bad several times, I'm feeling a different way about Gus Fring, and I understand um, your very well-articulated point about why you don't necessarily feel that way. Um, it, I think that's doing the really good good job of a prequel. It's not just using uh, things. It's not creating the midichlorians of Better Call Saul. It's not like using the opportunity for a prequel to like, for some reason, break down something that didn't need to be broken down. Um, this is a thing that is it's breaking down the Gus Fring character and rounding him out and adding yeah. to it's him the, in a way. It's the journey into the heart of darkness. Like we're, right. we're, we're digging deeper. We're, we're spelunking further <laughs> into, oh, no. the, into the souls of Gus Fring and, and uh, who we thought was Saul Goodman but is actually Jimmy McGill and Mike German Trout and everything like that. Well, uh, I, I think that's a great point of comparison. Like I have not, you know, there's been no midichlorian of it all uh, in Better Call Saul to me, and that's to the show's uh, credit for sure. So as far as Mike goes, when you were mentioning, uh, it's not as clear what his like lodestar, uh, shout out Tarzan, or uh, like North Star would be. Um, obviously, Gus seems to be tapped in a little bit. It, it seems like. Do you do you think the implication because uh, Gus is using the word revenge as a knife here, uh, metaphorically speaking? Not not to cut Mike up anymore, but he's using that to really dive into Mike's ribs here and try to get to the heart. Do you think Gus has 
studied and knows Mike's full backstory with Maddie and with everything that happened in Philadelphia Almost with the events of right? 5 Right. And so that. Almost certainly, because he's so thorough. That seems to be the He's revenge. A good man, yeah, and thorough and thorough. <laughs> Go see him, Jeffrey. Uh, this seems to be a way that that Gu- I feel like Gus has tapped into that, and Gus understands that Mike is a guy who is driven by that character note, that is driven by revenge, and that can make decisions in that regard. Mike seemingly put that aside after five zero. We saw him come to Albuquerque, shot up, he got over whatever it was that was through that, and he was able to settle in with Stacy uh, and with Kaylee and really get about his life. But Werner and everything that came with that really put all of those events back to the surface. I feel like Gus has not only said, like, why was Mike so upset about Werner? Uh, he understands that Mike was so upset about Werner because it triggered something in him uh, in killing this person um, that maybe was connected to the thing he did before. So he also knows Mike has, has rolled around in the mud with the Salamancas, and he has no love for Hector Salamanca, and he can be useful in that respect. But I think more than anything, he knows that Mike is a guy who is driven uh, and who has some demons and maybe those demons can be exploited. Right. Um, I, I don't know. I still don't know that, that we get to a point where Mike is this cautioned, reasonable private investigator type, but also so blindly driven by revenge that he works with Gus Fring, unless, as you're saying, we maybe get a bigger, uh, a more personal connection between Gus and Mike, that this is the beginning of the conversation, but not the end of it. I will be very interested to see where we go from here. Um, Gus seems to think Mike is the guy for this, uh, and I'm not sure that Mike thinks he's the guy for this. And Gus probably realizes on some level that, okay, Mike is not just a really valuable guy as a button man, as Mike puts it, as a guy who can kill people, but the fact that he was willing to take the responsibility for taking Werner off the board, feeling like he was personally responsible for it, crossing a line that he did not want to cross, that made him very upset for crossing it, this is a guy that I can rely on from an ethics or a code standpoint. He's not going to screw me over because he will, he will own up to what's right and what's not right. I think Gus recognizes that in Mike, and that's good. But I, I want to ask you about the guy for this. Um, when Mike and Gus are having their conversation and Mike is coming at Gus a little bit and saying, so what is this place? Like you built this whole place uh, and you know, does that make you feel good to balance the scales? Right. And Gus, fully aware of who he is and fully aware of his role in all this, says it makes up for nothing. I am what I am. And I want to connect this to Kim and Mr. Acker. Mr. Acker had a very similar conversation with Kim in Tucumcari at his doorstep a couple of episodes ago. And he said to her, like, you're the kind of person that makes all this money as a lawyer. And then every month you go out and you do a little bit of good work or you put some money in charity and you feel better about yourself. That's who you are. I can smell you coming a mile away. And that conversation seems to have set Kim on a tragic path uh, and put her in a position where she is making very, very, very bad decisions. I'm wondering, does Gus or does Kim know who she is? Did Mr. Acker really get that right? Or does Kim still feel like she's somebody different and Mr. Acker got it wrong? And that's why she's so upset. Does she know who she is in the way that Gus does? Because the way, the way, um, oh God, what's, what's uh, her boss's name again? Rich Schweikert. Rich Schweikert. So the way that when Rich comes to her and like takes her off the case, like, I, Rich Schweikert, like, you know, little man, but like kind of like a stand up dude in, in some regards, I think. And like the way that he's coming to her, like, I'm taking you off of this. I don't want to like spell it out, but like you shouldn't be on this anymore. You shouldn't be on Mesa Verde right now. Like, I'm not an idiot and I'm not coming out and just like saying like you're punking me and you're punking them. But like, I know that you are because I'm not dumb. Like, I thought of the way that like he broached that was like 
delicate given the severity of the situation and the severity of what Kim is clearly doing. Uh, but then when she comes after him, right, and like publicly lambasts him in front of the rest of the office, uh, that to me is because she's feeling so like personally aggrieved by what he is suggesting. But what he's suggesting is not incorrect. Uh, so she has not yet done the the real look in the mirror, I think. Um, I think that's coming. I think that's coming, and I think that she has a sense of it. I think that she has a sense of it from what Mr. Acker said. I think she has a sense of it from the way that this is all playing out right now. Um, but even like the 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 joy with which she's having that that hilarious conversation with Jimmy where they're impersonating both herself and Kevin, which is just one of the great all-time Jimmy and Kim scenes. Um the joy with that, the fact that Jimmy says, like, there's more we could do, uh, and she follows that path all the way down to the Stephen Ogg line. Uh, and even when Stephen Ogg is basically suggesting we kidnap Kevin and maybe do something worse, uh, that, like, Jimmy is the one who's like, all right, get out of here. You can leave the nail salon now. And Kim just kind of, like, continues digging in and into you know, what, what can we do with all the information he's presented? Like that hasn't really stirred the needle for her in, in as much of a way as maybe I would expect it would. Um, I think that something still has to happen for Kim to take that look in the mirror. It hasn't fully happened yet. She's caught glimpses of the reflection, but she has not looked it in the eye. That's the, the concern is when she does look, how bloodshot is that eye going to be? How bruised is that eye going to be? Like, how beat up is that eye going to be? And the thing that I keep thinking about is the discussion that you've had a lot on this podcast is, do we end this when she realizes who she is or when she has that self-assessment? Do we end this back in the town where she's from, where there's a grocery store, the Hinky Dinky, and where her best option would have been working as a cashier? Or do we end it working in a similar small town, but she's the small town lawyer for that small town? And does that sometime bring her back into contact with Jean like we've talked about? I just don't I don't I, I see that as a most likely outcome when this all comes crashing down for her, that she realizes that she wants to help little people. Uh, it, there's a lot of bad happening. I'm not sure what her level of realization is. Do you think um, so? We had a couple episodes ago when the beer bottles were thrown last episode. Then we saw uh, them completely nude in the bed afterwards. Uh, as we've talked about, we have not seen a lot of uh, really intense romantic stuff between Jimmy and Kim. We have a a lot of uh, peck kisses, but not a lot of hard MO, if you will. Sure. Not a lot of making out or anything. It seems to like the, the, the times when they are closest, uh, sexually speaking, when they're the most uh, physically charged in their relationship, comes after uh, a lot of the, the scamming. Uh, and and, and I have, think that that's a great creative choice, right? Like to kind yes. of like sexualize that, those moments. And there's a lot of like heat and passion behind that stuff. Right. Um, like I think just like creatively from from a writer standpoint to to really reserve those moments of physical intimacy when we're when we're seeing that stuff where they're like really turned on by each other, that they're turned on by like the plot. They're turned on by the scheme. Yeah, the role playing is Kim talking like Kevin Wachtel and getting angry to the point where she sounds like a Charlie Brown teacher, like blah 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 right. blah. Right? Like she that's what she hears from Kevin Wachtel. And that's what gets sexually charged to Jimmy asking her to get in the shower with him. Uh that's right, what we right. have. They throw the bottles at the car and they're both angry at the world, and that's when they end up nude in bed together. They run the scam with Huel and it works, and they have been on really bad terms, such that Kim said you're always down and all these horrible things have happened. Uh, uh, they're they're just up and down these peaks and valleys, but the peaks seem to come from these incidents. Uh, and the let's do it again of it all is so it's so dirty, it's so forbidden. They're going to keep doing it. Um, that 
that is to me, you say it's a creative choice and I agree it's a creative choice, but just from the standpoint of like what it says about Kim and their relationship and not healthy. And (laughs) yeah. And it's, I think definitely the direction the show is going. I, the, the Kevin part of it, this episode, it played really hilariously at first. Uh, and then it got like, like I said, a little dark when Kim was starting to really parrot Kevin and we started to hear how Kim heard Kevin. Uh, and then it ended up weird with the shower thing. Uh, and so that's, I think, really where we are. Um, we are. But let's talk about just uh, the, the Kevin Walk tell of it all. From that standpoint, um, Jimmy and Kim go through all these uh, these antics and they go through all the rigmarole. We can talk about uh, the things that the specific scenes that we love. But I want to I want to get at where they end up, which is we have this climactic conversation where things have uh, really run their course and they don't uh, they don't get to a point where uh, Kim has wanted it. It looks like maybe all the bullets in the chamber are fired from a procedural standpoint. They're laying in bed. They're fully clothed. And Jimmy's giving her, like, you should feel good speech. You gave it your best shot. You know, you gave him more than he deserved. Um, And then he says, like, let's be real. Putting me on this, bad idea. You risked a lot for this guy. uh, And it's really not a big deal if he moves. You can only push your bread and butter so far. He's telling her all these things. And then he does sneak in there. Well, you know, there's always another play. Uh, But the rational thing to do here is close the deal smile like you mean it. Uh, and then Kim wants to hear about the other play. Uh, my question for you generally is, do you think that Jimmy wanted yeah. her to go after the other play the whole time? Yeah. I, I, I mean, we have to talk about it, right? Because, right. but it breaks your heart to talk about, um, <laughs> cause you want to believe that, no, he's like actually being like, you did a, you, you, you gave it the good old college try, the good old American Samoan try. Uh, you know, like you really, you went for it as, as, as hard as you could, probably harder than you had to. Um, the reasonable thing to do is just call it. I mean, there's always another way, but we don't want to do that. Is that him just like being very earnestly, like kind of like a good, a good partner in this moment of like, you know, supporting her, her morals and supporting the effort and everything or Jimmy who has taken on Mr. Acker as a client and probably does not have a lot to show for it financially yet uh, and really wants to make a name for himself as Saul Goodman and probably still fantasizes about the day that he and Kim are literally working together and not just like kind of like spiritually working together, but like are professionally publicly working together. Is he incentivized to blow up her world a little bit? Is is he incentivized to destroy Mesa Verde uh, and destroy Kevin Wachtel and ruin that pipeline for Kim because he believes that he's going to be able to tap into another pipeline and she can be part of that? Like in his mind, is are these all like uh, you know Machiavellian tactics that are like uh, pretty unpalatable, but ultimately for a greater good? I hate it, but I'm inclined to think, yeah. Yeah, I'm inclined to think that that is probably where Jimmy's head is at. This is very in his wheelhouse. And even if it's not, it's a boy who cried wolf situation where like you can't trust Jimmy enough at this point to not at least consider the possibility that he is really deliberately um, pulling one over on Kim uh, to, to some degree. And not like in a way because like he's spiteful towards Kim necessarily, but in a way because like it's going to be good for his business and he believes that it'll ultimately be good for Kim as well. Um, but there is, you know... This is not an altruistic pursuit for him. He's trying to make a name for himself. Think about all the the actual like man hours he has spent on Mr. Acker, going to Tucumcari and and everything and uh, everything that had to be done in order to to create this elaborate ruse for at, at least like a week or so of work yeah. that has been going into this. He's got no paper to show for it. 
Right. And this is a guy who we saw previously uh, was willing to stop elevators just to handle his churn and burn caseload. Uh, this is a guy who had 42 clients at once. Like This is a guy who, as Saul Goodman, uh, is out there uh, and just killing it. And you're like, like you said, he seems to be putting a lot of that, if not all of it, aside for a pro bono client uh, just for Kim. His ulterior motives have to be there. I mean, think about it from almost the beginning of the series, certainly from maybe the middle of season one on, and then as a plot line uh, throughout season three uh, and four, um, Wexler McGill is a thing. It's a thing that Jimmy McGill has wanted, and that is not just as a personal partnership, but also as a professional one. He has wanted to be in the law practice uh, with Kim with Kim Wexler. Um, he even, not, not just in season one, looking at office space and showing her the nicer office and hoping that she will take it, um, but even with Huell, uh, video- videotaping at the beginning of one of the episodes last season uh, and going through a house and saying, if you were uh, if you were a female, if you were a woman, would you like this? Would you like this office? Like he has been focused on trying to bring Kim into the fold throughout. And when he gets the opportunity, he really tries to undermine her in other professional settings in certain ways. He goes to Rich Schweikert and he talks trash about him. He is angry at the people who have kept Kim away from him professionally. It only stands to reason that that's at least lurking behind his motives here, whether he knows it or not. Now, I thought it was a really good job between uh, Seahorn and Odenkirk in this scene and the way they played it, uh, that you really weren't sure uh, that Jimmy was leaning into that heavily. He didn't overplay his hand in that regard, but we have seen every episode, Josh. Yeah, uh, whether or not thing. Kim can remember them, we do, yeah, uh, and yeah. we know that, there, that, that that does not occur in a vacuum, Jimmy's and, behavior I mean, there, here. There, there could be a piece of it, Antonio, where this is just like second nature to him. You know, where like it's just like his default is kind of to just like throw out like, well, there's always another way. But like we've just seen the way that he's conducted himself in these situations where we have no reason to believe that he's doing other anything other than scamming somebody. Um, And this fits that M.O. to a letter, you know, to the letter like it's Kim. So you don't want to think that he would be doing that to her. But we also we don't know for sure, but we can greatly assume that they are not together in better in Breaking Bad, right? Um, right. Like, I guess we don't a hundred percent know, but we can, I think, make a pretty good bet that he's not. So we know that we're in that place of the show right now, where something calamitous has to happen to their relationship. This would fit the bill. This would fit the bill if he really drags her down into the abyss in a way that, like, you know. She's like a willing participant to a certain degree in the in the dragage <laughs> of, of, you know, spelunking into that abyss to use that word again. Uh, but that she will eventually like wake up and be like, I can't do this. And he'll be like, oh, but you wanted it. You said you do it. And like not seeing like why his tactics and how he dirtied her up and everything like that. Um, like it just feels like this is all the recipe for disaster stuff that we're seeing. Uh, the whole show, I, I, you know, you you talk about circling the drain. I really love the the slow motion car wreck qualities of it, especially as it pertains to Kim, who was in a fast forwarded car wreck yes. at one point in the show. <laughs> right. um, that like the whole greater arc of Better Call Saul as a series is a slow motion car wreck, but here we are at the point where like the van and in inception is about to finally hit the the first sheet of the water you know like we've been falling off the bridge for a very long time uh and we are just like inches above the water right now as it pertains to Jimmy and Kim 
And part of what makes Better Call Saul really good to me as a whole piece, not necessarily in the moment to moment where it doesn't always have or even often have the thrilling moments of Breaking Bad. Worth saying, I think that uh, Better Call Saul is better as a as a as a broad piece, as like the collective than it is uh, than it is the individual components. And so thinking of that as a collective, you have to th- you have to co- consider everything that happens with Jimmy in seasons one, two, and three, the battles between he and Chuck, the crescendo of that, and what ultimately leads to so much of the falling action and the resolution, uh, the dark resolution of their relationship, is that Jimmy is so desperate for Kim to have Mesa Verde as a client. That is very important to him that she have Mesa Verde. She won them as a client. That was her business. And she won them again as a client. And then Chuck had the audacity to come in and what Jimmy saw as a personal affront to him, try to hurt Kim by taking Mesa Verde back for HHM. That was the sin that led Jimmy to forging the documents and screwing over Mesa Verde for Chuck and for HHM. That screw over and those documents being forged is what led Chuck to faking like he was going to retire and and instead recording Jimmy admitting that Jimmy did that for Kim and that Jimmy wanted Kim to have have Mesa Verde. So Jimmy is a guy who went through all of this with his brother, who lost his law license for a year, ultimately, because he wanted Kim to have Mesa Verde. And now he wants Kim not to have Mesa Verde. Uh, and to me, that's a very, that's just a fascinating thing to think about in the long arc of their relationship and between the two characters. Uh, he is a guy who will do what he wants it to serve himself when he wants it. He will go to great lengths to get Kim Mesa Verde and to help her keep it. He will now go to great lengths to get rid of it. Uh, and that's just because he's doing what he wants, which is, in this case, I think, what he thinks Kim wants right. or what he thinks is best for Kim. It may not, in fact, be what's best for Kim, and it may not, in fact, be what Kim wants. That's a thing that's always been interesting to me and I've talked about in this podcast. Like, Kim clearly has the soul of a lawyer who is not the kind of person who would want to work for Mesa Verde. That is what is pulling her in this direction as much as anything, and that is her great awakening. She's talked about the Atticus Finch, it, like uh, the the influence that had on her choosing a legal career. We know how much those pro bono clients mean to her. So she is the person who has that soul. I don't know that how we get to the point where she should be working for Mesa Verde because I don't think she should. And yet, the way that it's being taken away from her or the way that it's going to bomb out will feel so negative that they've done, they've threaded a very uh, delicate needle there in that respect in considering everything that has come in the past with Jimmy and Mesa Verde and Jimmy and Kim and Mesa Verde. So uh, it's a high wire act on Better Call Saul, and it's fascinating to watch on that level. Even if the moment to moment in the individual pieces are not exciting, although we did have a lot of really, really fun stuff in this episode. And I think fun stuff in a way that Better Call Saul can sometimes be too, they can indulge too much, like by showing Jimmy paying off the elevator operator. I didn't need to know that Jimmy uh, and Mr. Acker removed those house numbers and forged a bunch of mail to put in the mailbox. Uh, I saw Jimmy working, of course, on the pottery, but I didn't need to know, like all these scams, to know that Jimmy McGill was pulling strings this entire time and it was quite literally in fact in the case of the radioactive elements it was really really fun to watch it was all that. so fun it was just a, it was it was it was great like you know the, the jazzy quality to it the the recurring motif of i need to make a call uh like even when the guy the guy's like don't say it <laughs> yeah it's so funny <laughs> you know the, the whole thing was was really really brilliant and and i think 
when when the show is at its best, uh, it can stitch a sequence like this together better than anything else. Uh, you know, better than any other any other program out there. Um, you know, that's something that really carries over from the Breaking Bad days. I think that they could be overindulgent, like you say, uh, and I think that they can lean on it too too much. Um, but here, I thought it was it was perfectly executed and really highlighted like the the lengths to which Jimmy is is going to do this for Kim. So like it expresses his love for Kim in his own like sick little Jimmy way. Um, but I think what it also does express is how much work Jimmy has put into this piece uh, has, has put into this part of the process so far um, that it's just like, man, oh man, this is not a guy who's going to let go of this fight so easily given everything that he's put into it. He's not going to let go of it so easily. So. Uh, and <laughs> that's why I'm inclined to agree with you that uh, when he's sort of suggesting, well, we can still go after Kevin, but it's the wrong idea, uh, that he has a goal that he wants in that conversation. Um, it, it In going after Kevin, they engage Stephen Ogg, uh, who you referenced. He's been a guy that's been on a couple of shows I know that you podcast about, Josh. Yeah, he was on uh, Walking in- Dead. He's been, uh, he's been on uh, Westworld. He's Trevor from Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, uh, he is. He is Soapjack from Better Call Saul. Previously, yeah, we had uh, seen him previously. So it was, I saw his name in the opening credits. I was like, oh, sweet, Stephen Ogg. Why are we going to get him? And I guess it was because Mike's unavailable. Right, <laughs> he's otherwise occupied. And I think that's a scene where uh, Jimmy and Kim calling Mike is a scene that was very funny, by the way. Are you in a tunnel? I'm not in a tunnel. You yeah. know, yeah, I am in a tunnel. Uh, it, that That's a scene we wouldn't have uh, had in a shorter episode. So uh, that little interlude was very funny. Well, Jimmy nice. calls. Also, just because like it's a it's, it's a, th- one of the things that's difficult about the show is because where we know they go on, on Breaking Bad. It's sure. like there has to be something of a remove between Jimmy and Mike. Um, but I love the ways that they can still kind of have those ships meeting each other in the night, even if they're just like going passing in, into different ports uh so that was that, that was a great scene i loved when when jimmy and mike had the call yeah and it, like like you're you're right that uh we have always tried to figure out how can mike be the guy that is so wrapped up with uh with gus and with everything there and jimmy has no idea who gus is uh jimmy has no idea of that connection to the world mike is the connective tissue mike does not clearly just work for jimmy in fact jimmy is probably pretty low on the totem pole but he's also i don't know and we will have to get to that point where he's willing to work with and for jimmy uh but not necessarily uh exclusively um we don't know how much that they the two of them work together after this uh, mike was at least interested enough to take the call let's say that and it was pretty funny that mike said oh you're a lawyer again like okay yeah sure well you know we'll talk again another time um but they they call what jimmy thinks is the guy for this it's not so jimmy has to go back to the vet uh giselle aka kim very curious about this vet like who is this guy is this like an underworld craigslist mm-hmm. uh, where do we get these people <laughs> yeah. um and Sobchak, uh definitely a shout out to walter Sobchak from the big lebowski uh in that name shows up uh and it is steven Ogg. it is uh the guy trevor from grand theft auto Last seen in Better Call Saul season one, episode nine, Pimento. That is the episode where the Glad veterinarian his, uh, his throat's doing better. Yes, exactly. Mike, uh, Mike came at his throat, uh, took the guns off of him in the parking garage with Man Mountain there and with Price uh, there needing backup for the deal with Nacho, the initial deal with Nacho, having only showed up with a pimento cheese sandwich. Trevor is mocking. Yeah, he brought a Trevor. pimento cheese sandwich to a gunfight, or maybe yes, exactly. maybe it was uh, Sobchak brought uh, three guns to a pimento cheese sandwich fight. Exactly. <laughs> 
my dirty undies, dude. The yeah. whites. Yeah. Um, yeah. This did not. Uh, this did not ultimately go. He was also a creepy locksmith on Broad City, by the way. Uh, and I remember that uh, he's 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 channeling a lot more of that creepy locksmith energy uh, in Better Call Saul. I think a really interesting, fun performance here. He's got that Mel Gibson beard, uh, but he always also kind of looks like Quentin Tarantino a little bit when he doesn't have the beard. So he's an interesting character. Stephen Ogg, uh, I, my, I, as somebody who really loves the actor uh, and has has really enjoyed him in all of the shows that I've seen him in, uh, my great fanfic, or I guess it's not fanfic so much as it is, uh, if I ever make it, Antonio, if I ever make it, what I want to do is come up with some sort of uh, black comedy, dramedy, like... Uh, Stephen Ogg and Walton Goggins are brothers type of thing because I think like Og, Og and Gog yeah like I th- uh, Walton Gog uh, Walton Oggins I think like the the world deserves the 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 show where those two are brothers and and some some awful shenanigans ensue yeah he really should have ended up on Justified it's kind of weird that he did as but, Boyd uh, Crowder's like secret like uh, distant cousin or something like that. Gog and Og. I'm yeah, ready. Gog I'm here Og. for it. Yeah. That's, uh, that's good. Gog I like and that. Og sounds I like, like something you say after you get punched in the throat. Gog and yes. Og! By, <laughs> by a guy only holding yeah. a pimento cheese yes. sandwich. Yes. Uh, but it's funny because in that episode in Pimento, uh, he was really portrayed as sort of this uh, cocksure yet stupid uh, guy who was not the guy for this, showing up completely wrong on that job. They used him and to a lesser extent, the man mountain character in that scene to really establish that Mike knew what the hell he was doing and that Mike was really so good at what he does that he had already done the background on Nacho Varga. He already knew that Nacho was away from uh, his like, group and therefore he would be very interested in keeping this quiet and that it would be to his best interest for this to go smoothly. He understood all of that before he ever showed up at that parking garage. That's why he only brings a sandwich. That's all he's thinking about. The guy, Stephen Ogg, Sobchak, is showing up like a merc, like just showing up like he's ready to throw down and shoot uh, and he's not the guy you want for this. So it, I think it's interesting that he actually seems to have done decent work with regard to Kevin Wachtel. Yeah, but they they ended with the button of like, now I'm going to kill him. <laughs> you exactly. Know, he's still, yeah, he's still that know, guy. He's still like awful. So like, yeah. it's not that he's not you know good at his job, but he's maybe not the guy you want for this ultimately. Yeah. Although he maybe unintentionally, even though he knew that it was important to take pictures around the office and take pictures of stuff, he maybe unintentionally seems to have given Kim an idea of something she can use against Kevin Wachtel. Do you have any sense of what might be going on there? No, no. But obviously, obviously she has some sort of very bad idea. It it looks like something, maybe like a copyright or trademark issue with the uh, with the Mesa Verde logo. Maybe. Um, and the reason I'm saying that is she seems to be comparing images of that cowboy on a horse with the cactus. And there's a painting that she's looking at that's there or like some kind of picture or photograph that's on his desk of it. And that's also the logo. And she, when she's in the office, we see her doing a quick search before Rich Schweikert comes in and gives her that talk. Um, we see her sort of looking up their imagery. Uh, and I do wonder, I, I cannot, I think people are going to glean directly from this, and I don't know that it's going to be correct thinking it may prove to be correct, but I don't know that we can confirm, say that that's what's happening, um, because that photograph or whatever she was looking at, uh, it, it could have just been a, a, a painting that was an interpretation of the Mesa Verde logo. It doesn't have to be prior art. It doesn't have to be a prior example of the logo that someone used that Kevin Wachtel ripped off and that Mesa Verde's whole brand 
branding is based on someone else's protected material. It doesn't have to be that. But there is something going on there, and that could easily be what it is from a legal standpoint. Mm. And she could be coming after their whole brand uh, because she feels like there's something not right about it, that there is something maybe that it was stolen or something like that. So that could be what's happening. I don't have a really good idea that it is or that there is something. It does seem like it's going to be bad, and I think that what we're going to see is that Rich is right about this. Uh, we have the conversation between Rich and Kim that we've talked about there, uh, and Kim is, I think, realizing not you know she's clearly lying. She says, "Please tell me why you think I would risk everything for some squatter." Uh, and Rich says, "I'm not trying to protect the firm. I'm trying to protect you." Kim says, "I don't need protection." Rich says, "If that's how you want it." Uh, when Kim says, "Please tell me why you think I would risk everything for some squatter," I feel like she actually probably needs to be told that. Like that's something her psychiatrist needs to be telling her, not Rich Schweiker. Like yeah. that is the explanation as an audience that we need to yeah. know. Like, yeah. why are you doing this, Kim? Yeah. Why are you risking mm-hmm. everything for some squatter? Yeah. Like that is an open question for everyone, not just for Rich Schweiker. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fundamental question for Kim. I think that she's going to have to reckon with the answer to that eventually. Uh, whether or not, like, because the show does not overfeed us with information, whether or not the show like spells it out more cleanly or leaves us to kind of like find the answer on our own via Kim, um, you know, kind of soul searching, like leaving Albuquerque or whatever will come of it. Um, but that is that is absolutely the question she needs to be asking right now, because I think it, it's not even you know, it, it's not about it's not about Jimmy. It's 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 partly about Jimmy. It's mostly about about Kim and why she has like both like sort of like this this um this sort of hero complex, but also this destructive complex. Like that she's, she could be both hero and destroyer in, in, you know, with the snap of her fingers. It's, it's, she's a fascinating character. Um, and again, like, that's why I, I was really impressed with how rich handled himself in this. Uh, I thought like, like it, it struck me as like, he really values Kim. And I mean, even like Kevin, like knowing that like Jimmy is the one who's representing Mr. Acker doesn't want to let go of Kim. These are testaments to how, badass of a lawyer kim wexler is and just how how much people love kim wexler not just in the audience but in the world of better call saul uh because she's so great because she's so good at what she does because she's so hyper competent um because she's somebody that you want on your side she's somebody you want to root for and it it seems like it breaks everybody's heart when she's clearly breaking bad this i you're right and it's it's not just the audience and i think you're you're right to re, uh, you're right to recognize rich schweikert's role in this that he doesn't want to get into it he even says like he went out do of we his really way have to, to say like, it you know he's wanted her in the firm for a long time you know he right. was he was so pumped when she came to him with like the here's my idea for like t- uh, teaming up with you like he loved that because he had already previously tried to to get her on board uh none of this is fun for him he hates this I think this was Ray Seahorn's best episode, honestly. And But the thing is, I also think that we have not yet seen her best episode. Sure. And I think 100%. we'll probably see it in this season. But I think she's just doing phenomenal work as Kim, uh, pulling herself in that direction. Us as an audience screaming that she needs to know the answer to that question. Uh, Rich Schweikert screaming at her as well about all of this. Or not really screaming, but, you know, certainly talking to her, saying things he doesn't even want to say. Um, and, and Ray Seahorn's playing all that so well. We got that quiet moment where she's reflecting after that showdown uh, and just everything that's that's coming out of, of Ray Seahorn. Like I said, the nuance of her Kevin impression, not only how funny it was, but how the funny so quickly turned into darkness yeah. in terms of me recognizing, God, this is what she hears. Like, that's how negative she hears this guy. And really, Kevin Wachtel is kind of a dick. He's, he's kind of a dick. But you know what? 
he could be much more of a dick. Like they have not really leaned into making him one dimensional evil. Uh, he, he's, he's a businessman and he is not like a sexist. He doesn't come off that way. He doesn't do a lot of the typical things where he would be more hateable. Um, he, he's just, he is who he is. Uh, and so the fact that she hears him as such a horrible person, I mean, keep in mind, she called Rich Schweikert, Kim called Rich Schweikert Howard. Uh, after their initial interview. Uh, so sometimes she hears things uh, that aren't necessarily uh, what the person who is trying to do just what they do uh, intends them to be. Right. Um, speaking of Howard, Josh. I also just really do- quickly want to say that I think yeah. uh, that that scene with, with Jimmy and Kim, we've talked about like the comedy of it. But I, I, I think the reason why that is where, where they're impersonating uh, Kevin and then Jimmy's doing his Kim impression, uh, it wasn't just hysterical. Um, it was such a perfect encapsulation of Better Call Saul at its best that it could be both funny and intense. It can be both hilarious and like kind of like mortifying in terms of what it has to say about the human condition uh, and, and what it has to say about like what we're willing to do and the brokenness of us as a people uh, and, and examining that through the lens of, of these characters uh, that I, I would put the scene between Jimmy and Kim doing their very best Kevin Wachtel, not just as the best episode of the, ep- not just as the best scene of the episode, not just as the best scene of the season so far, um, but as one of the very best scenes of the entire series. No doubt. Uh, in like, and for the reasons you said, plus it ends in sex. So it's got all that. <laughs> it's got everything it. you want. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's got everything. This place has everything. Right, Kevin Wachtel impressions. Let's talk yeah, about, let's Howard. Talk about Howard Hamlin. Is is he is he calling Jimmy because like he suspects like he threw the bowling ball, or is Howard just like so naive that he doesn't even realize that Jimmy threw the bowling ball? <laughs> I think that those those questions are in the air. Yes, and like the bowling balls yeah. in many cases. Yeah. I think he knows. I think Howard knows. Uh, I, I I love the performance. Uh, I love the performance from Patrick Fabian here because he's got his feet up. He Patty looks like babes. he's in a very zen room. Yeah. Um, but he, I think he knows. Uh, he, he was I about to know. say something. I don't know. Sometimes I can't tell like how, <laughs> how smart of a guy Howard Hamlin really is. Like, is he is he like enough of a sucker who's like, I've got like my great idea that Jimmy's going to come back. Like, this is going to be redemption. We're all going to have a great time. Like, I can't tell like from his demeanor because he's always such a robot. Like always, like he's always the Terminator. Just, there's always just something very like kind of like you know, childishly robotic about him, uh, that he is just like this, like grown up baby in a man suit, uh, that like he, I I couldn't tell, I can't tell, I can't tell like the, the, the distinction between when Howard is like sharper than you realize versus when he's like dumber than you realize. Like he's somewhere in the middle of that for me. Um, you think he knows I, I actually I'm, I'm still in the dark. I have no idea. It reads, it reads both ways to me right now. You're right that it does read both ways. And I think that that's part of the beauty of Howard Hamlin uh, is that and that's why it Patty works so Babes well. Is right? great. I mean, he, really yeah. an underrated uh, component here on Better Call Saul. I, I, I know that I, we were saying the other week that like they don't use him a lot and, and that kind of stinks. But I actually think maybe they use him the perfect amount. Well, and I'm I am curious to see where the bowling ball and the job offer tie into the Mesa Verde and the larger storyline that Jimmy McGill is undergoing this season as Saul Goodman. Uh, we had it as a one-off last week, where it's like, well, Jimmy's so full of self-loathing that even an honest answer from a well-adjusted person is enough to set him off in that way. Uh, and then Howard is not in the wrong, and he's not the bad guy here. Jimmy's the bad guy, so that was a character note for Jimmy. But I, wh- where do we go from here? Like, where does the knife end? 
end up? Uh, does it end up in Jimmy's back? Does it end up in Howard's back? Does Howard put Jimmy into a particular place? Is it uh, when Jimmy and Francesca are having that scene uh, in the Breaking Bad timeline from Better Call Saul, as you've speculated with the shredding right. and with the call these people for a job and uh, be there on this point? Is it truly HHM that he refers to at that point. And I think probably it is. Uh, and I think you're probably right about that. It's just interesting. Howard did say, oh, Jimmy, one more thing. He was trying to talk to Jimmy still when Jimmy hung up on him, which is pure dick move by Jimmy. But I do wonder what that one more thing was from Howard. And I do think we're obviously still to come on this. I don't think you have the bowling balls thrown into the air and not find, not not have Howard close that loop sure, at some course, point. Maybe Jimmy will just tell him, like yeah. in the way that Skyler said IFT or in the way that Walt said I watched Jane die. Right. Uh, maybe we're going to have Jimmy dig that knife into Howard yeah. at some point. So. I threw the bowling ball. <laughs> I, I did it, Howard. <laughs> I didn't have to do it, but I did. I liked it. <laughs> I liked it. I did it for me. I did it for me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of doing things Namaste, for me. Namaste, uh, mother the uh the the whole situation with mike isn't mike better off if he just stays there yes. with senora uh, uh, and never the, leaves that place for the rest life, of his the life your life he's eating better he's just doing like uh you know like the, it's like his version of the the new hampshire isolation that walter white goes into except happier uh be- yeah. better weather uh better company uh, he, he gets to like help be productive. Yeah, there are con- children there that he can mm-hmm. that he can be grandpa to. Yeah, you know, more conducive to Mike's lifestyle. Uh, be better to be a uh, abuelo Mike than Pappy Mike, I think, or whatever Kaylee calls him. So. I think so. I think so too. So what else too. do we want to talk about from this episode? I don't episode know that I got that anything else. I think we did it. Uh, I loved it. I loved it. I think this is one of my favorite episodes of Better Call Saul ever. Uh, I think that it just it had so many things in it that I. That I think that the show often goes for, and like, if I may be so bold, like maybe doesn't hit quite as hard as it as it as it wants to. Um, I think that they they pulled things off this week that uh, are not easy to pull off. I thought it was it was um, subtle in ways. Um, it was you know as subtle as a sledgehammer in others. Uh, it leaned on. It had great Mike moments. It had great Gus moments. It had great Jimmy moments. It had great, as you say, potentially all time Kim moments. Uh, had a great Howard scene. Uh, it had absolutely everything that you could possibly want out of this show. Uh, best of the season for me so far by far. And I think, you know, just like doing the quick mental scan of all of the episodes of Better Call Saul, this would be really, really high up in the rankings for me. Uh, for for me, for the best of the season, for sure. And I haven't really thought about it in the context of the greater series, but uh, very entertaining episode. For me, the big thing was striking the balance of humor uh, with, as we exactly. were talking about, encapsulated by that one scene, just striking the balance of humor with the darkness or with pain and consider uh, concern for these characters. There's also just some beautiful stuff in here. I love the way it looks uh, with Mike in Mexico. Yep. The sepia tone reminded me of The Godfather 2, the scenes uh, in the old country, oh, just beautiful it, stuff there. Reminded me of when when Michael goes to Italy in Godfather One. Um, yeah, I, I keep waiting for a senor to get into a car and Mike to see the well, doctor. So- is like, hey, what's going on? And the doctor runs away. It's like, don't get into the car. And she blows <laughs> yeah. up. Yeah, same stuff. I mean, definitely. It's it's the old country scenes in Godfather 1 or 2, uh, whether it's the, the beginning scenes uh, before young Vito comes over or whether it's Michael returning uh, it, or going there after to well, to lay low in right. Godfather 1. Right. Uh, it has that that element, that that aspect to it. It's uh, it's really, really good stuff. I also, just some, I mean, I really laughed really hard uh, when we had the first construction circle right there at the beginning and then Jimmy's poking his head into the circle and you were right, like the running <laughs> gag, a great yeah. casting on the 
foreman yeah. and the cop. Like, just really funny stuff. Yep. Um, and I have to make a call. The foreman exasperated throughout, blowing his whistle and throwing his hands up, saying, taking 10. ten. <laughs> yeah, just all really, really funny great. stuff. It was great. Um, I do have just a couple more questions for you. Where do you think Paige is in all of this? Paige backs Kim's play throughout. Uh, Paige says, you know, uh, she says to Kevin, you know, I think Kim really would prefer not to go home to opposing counsel. Uh, she's also backing Paige and Rich's play later in the episode when they're saying to Kevin, like, hey, it wouldn't cost anything at this point. Just put the call center on the other side. Uh, so where is Paige in all of this? Is she is she going to blow up the way that is she going to play a role in all this? She seems to have Kim's back throughout this. Yeah. She doesn't seem to be not trusting of Kim in any way. Yeah, but I think in the same way that uh, Rich is smart enough to figure out what's going on, I think Paige ultimately will be as well. Uh, I hope so. That's yeah. the part where I, I feel like Paige should have put these 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 things together sooner. Uh, I, I I know I'm glad that Rich did. I just I think Paige should have as well, and I think she ultimately will, and that could be her undoing is not getting that backing. Obviously, Kevin loves Kim, so Paige can only stick her neck out against Kim, Kim so far. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's a problem. But I think Paige was really siding with Kim because she agreed with that. Uh, Rich or Kevin obviously did not. Um, what about when uh, just just generally speaking, Rich's play when Rich says to Kevin, like, uh, I, "Hey, you know what? Build the center somewhere else. You'll be making uh, the you'll be making them spend money with no hope of getting money back. You will win ultimately by what you consider losing. Uh, we've talked a lot about the sunk cost fallacy. That was in fact uh, something referenced directly on the show. I think it might have even been an episode title. Um, I'm wondering if that has any resonance to you when Kim is unable to recognize that maybe you need to back out of this vis a vis Jimmy uh, and Rich is saying to Kevin like, "Hey, back away from the table. Don't do what you want." Kim bucks or Kevin bucks up his back and says, that's not what my daddy taught me. And Kim seems to be doubling down when she shouldn't be. It just seems to be a connection there between, uh, for me, between these characters, Kevin and Kim, uh, Kevin's doubling down when he shouldn't be when other people, including the same person, Rich Schweikert is telling him not to do it. Uh, Rich is telling Kim not to do this. And she's doubling down. Kim and Kevin are very similar to me in that way. And I think it was loosely underscored by the way Kevin behaved in that scene. Yeah. Well, let's tie this all back together and bring it back to Gus Fring, uh, because I think it's the same thing. If Gus can just like accept that Hector is a ruined husk of a man and he's still in there and that's enough. You got your vengeance. I know right. I know it's not exactly the way you wanted it to be, but this person who caused you great suffering is suffering very badly. Walk away. Maybe Gus Fring doesn't explode. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, right. And and I think it's, you know, that's that's one of the grand messages of, of these shows in, in tandem is uh knowing when to walk away from the table. And tragically, most of these people don't figure that out until it's too late. And it is uh it maybe that maybe the um maybe the lose, lose a battle theme. to win a war, you know. Yeah, and maybe the overarching theme of these shows is that sunk cost fallacy, continuing to behave in a certain way because of all of your previously invested resources, when the re- the real thing to do, the best thing to do is to walk away. Walter White had that same opportunity, obviously. He he was ev- counting to the specific number. He made the specific number. He didn't walk away. And look where we end up. So that that the sunk cost fallacy is, is definitely something that is thematically present throughout so much of both of these shows. Uh, and it rears its head uh, in 
in very specific ways throughout this episode as well. Uh, we also didn't really talk about the specifics of their scams. Did you have a favorite one uh, between the Jesus image or uh, the uh, 7th Cavalry radioactive battery move uh, or any of these other specific scams? The Bones. The dig site. The dig site. The dig site the one. Dig that's just, your favorite one? The dig site just cracked me up because I was thinking about the logistics of it. Because uh, that's one where they really don't show us what those logistics are. Uh, like, what happened? How did that stuff get placed yeah. there? Uh, Jimmy's mind is just a, is a delicious mess of terrifying chaos. It's just like <laughs> that's a great way you to know, put it. Like he's he's constantly just like coming up with stuff that like you can't even fathom. And obviously, by extension, that means these writers are are monsters. <laughs> you know what they're what they are capable of dreaming up is is rather monstrous. Uh, the dig site I just just thought was hysterical. Like I would love to follow a show that's about the archaeologist who's leading the dig site there. She's like, I think this is contemporary. Come on. And, you know, it's it's not even a good fake. I don't know why he was needing the the teas or the curries to, I guess, like diet or like uh, make it look like it was a little bit worn when it was so obviously not going to be able to pass as a fake. Uh, it was so obviously contemporary instantly, but they were going to have to check the whole site just to make sure. Uh, really just funny stuff. I also, I, one of my favorite things about the whole montage and sequence was how involved Mr. Acker was with all of it. Yeah, uh, I, giddily, I, I, I love, giddily I love, I love that he's so giddy. I really like the character of Mr. Acker. They did a great job finding that guy and not making him, like Kevin Wachtel, not making him a sexist, not making him like a, just an unabashedly objectionable person right. so that we can actually side with him a little bit here and have fun watching him and Jimmy look up at constellations while the hired security is waiting to see if they're going to pull any capers and they pull one right in front of their faces. Uh, it's just really, really great stuff there. Uh, I also just, so much com- comedy in this episode. I love the comedy of, of Mike, he wants a charge phone so bad, Josh, and he's going to go to great lengths. He's taking a receiver apart and he's, he's soldering these wires together and the senior just hands him a phone charger. Just hilarious. And also that Gus is like, it's not a good time. Just like yeah, hangs up it, on him. Yeah, just, yeah, so, uh, do you know who this is? Of course. Yeah. The show, the <laughs> not a good this time. This is what I'm saying is that the show this week, uh, Everybody was at the top of their game from a writing perspective, from a directorial perspective, from an acting performance perspective, but from a character perspective too, from a tonal perspective. Uh, this is if 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 the show was like this every single week, you know, like this is this is when the show is at its best. Um, so I I really really adored it. I I thought it was just such a great episode. Uh, like that, like M- Mike doing his Batman thing, only for like someone to like just like give him a phone charger is so funny. So so yeah. so funny. I want to end with one thing here. Kevin smelled a rat uh, when he was at his country club talking to Kim. And we thought, I thought for a moment that he maybe had this sniffed out. But what he sniffs out, he thinks, is that Acker hired Jimmy specifically to try to get Kim conflicted off the case. He, in other words, impugns Acker uh, with the sort of behavior, the the, the beautifully chaotic mind uh, that we know Jimmy McGill has, and that, unfortunately, that Kim has. And, well, this was Kim's idea. Let's not forget. It was Kim who went to Jimmy and solicited him to do this. Uh, and Jimmy's going all in, of course. Uh, and when we say Jimmy's trying to get Kim away from Mesa Verde, he is probably using this as an opportunity. But it was not his idea. He was happy to let sleeping dogs lie in this regard and live his life. Kim came to him and now she's got everything that that encompasses. But Kevin smelled a rat and says, this is who, you know, this is, I, I think Acker is involved in this. Uh, and that was, that was not the rat ultimately uh, that was in play here. But later in the episode, near the end of the episode, 
Gus says to Mike, you're at a crossroads. You can continue as you are, and we both know how that, how that ends, uh, but you have another choice. Uh, and I'm wondering what you see. Uh, Kim Wexler is at a crossroads in this respect. She does not take the path offered to her by Rich Swikert uh, when Gus implies Mike's crossroads path that he shouldn't take ends with him dying, uh, whereas the button man job getting revenge on the people that he doesn't like uh, and with some element of him being happy um, – Kim's crossroads, uh, Rich Schweikert is offering her the path that probably doesn't end negatively for her. She chooses the negative path, not the one that we know that Mike chooses, um, but the one that, that she chooses is very bad uh, in showing Rich up and in basically saying, I'm continuing to go all in on this. Um, does she end up, is there any chance that there should be some connective tissue between the crossroads talk there? And should we be looking at Kim's decision in the way that Gus was framing Mike's decision? Yeah, in the sense that this will blow up on Kim. Yeah, I'm not- in in a, in a way that's in a way that's very very bad. Like the the negative choice for Mike ends in death. Right. Um, is there any possibility the negative choice for Kim ends up in a very 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 bad place? Because as of I course. said, getting rid of Mesa Verde not a bad thing. I don't think for a person who shouldn't be doing corporate law anyway. Right, right. But I think that the like the that's the thing is. And, and this is this is what you know. We're talking about how Kim has not yet looked herself in the mirror to like fully recognize what she's capable of, who she is, what she's doing, all of this stuff. Um, and Gus has that line of "I am what I am." It's two different characters tackling the same question with different answers. And so, like this question of can you be more than Saul Goodman? Can you be more than this persona? Um, who are you? Do you have to break bad? Can you can you abandon whatever? you know, like quest you're on that's going to get you metaphorically, if not literally blown up. Um, I think it needs to have different answers. Uh, and I think for Kim, my hope is that it has an answer that I think hard, hard, you know, cause life doesn't have like pure happy endings necessarily, right? Like there's always going to be some tinge of regret, of regret that you have about something where like something that is, uh, that like you, you do wonder like if it had just worked out another way. Um, but can all of this stuff like massively explode in Kim's face and much like the car wreck from earlier in the series, she walks away damaged, but alive um, and is maybe able to like stop down and rethink what she's doing and how she needs to like be taking care of herself in a different way and how she needs to be moving in a different way. Um, Maybe that can be applied to her in, in the long haul. Maybe that's like an early sign of what the greater Kim arc is, or that was a crossroads as well. And that was supposed to be the wake-up call of, like, look how close you were to utter destruction. And instead, she continues down this path. Maybe she's already chosen her fork on the crossroad. Yeah. And I think I think the probably the worst-case scenario, because she probably has chosen her fork, is maybe ends with her law license being, being stripped. I mean, she comes out into that hall and she says, malfeasance? Is that what you're accusing me of? Like, directly trying to undermine my client? Like, the sorts of things when she's using terms of art, uh, like malfeasance, it makes me, it makes me, it puts me on alert that we could be talking about a bar complaint or something. It would be sadly ironic, right? Or just a, a terrible O. Henry-type twist if uh, Jimmy keeps his law license and Kim loses hers right. as a result of all yeah. this behavior. And yet we could easily end up there. Uh, and that's, I think, the part where we could we could get to the dark path. Uh, the the you're heading down this the wrong crossroad for Mike is death. Uh, it's death either way, by the way. But uh, it's probably more a, a quicker death uh, and a death that doesn't end up uh, where it does uh, before he's able to reunite with his family and all that um, the way he does in Breaking Bad. But uh, the, the bad choice for Kim, I think the die is already cast. The crossroads she's already chosen 
Uh, and she's probably chosen uh, Crossroads that's a little more nuanced than Mike because she's chosen her Revenge Crossroads. But in her case, the Revenge Crossroads is probably the darker one. Uh, and it's not going to go well. And I don't know why she's behaving in such a way for someone that's been so nice to her. She can just quit. She doesn't have to do any of these. Rich Schweikert has offered her an out. She doesn't take it. So it, she's gone past the point of just wanting to take herself off of this case. And she's now gone to the realm of actively wanting to harm Mesa Verde. And that's coming from a dark place. Uh, and like I said, I don't think we've seen the end of that. And as a result, I don't think we've seen the best Ray Seahorn performance we're going to see, but I think we've seen the best one we have seen so far. But all in all, I think we really agree. Great, great episode of Better Call Saul. I hope everyone else liked it. How can people get in touch with us, Josh, if they want to send feedback? Many different ways. You can tweet at us. I'm at Round Howard. Antonio is at AC Mazzaro with uh, a number of Z's and R's he will tell you about now. Two Z's and one R. Uh, you can also tweet at Post Show Recaps. You can also email us. BCS at postshowrecaps.com, I believe, is our email address. Uh, yep. you, can, you can hit us up in all of those different ways to, to let us know what you're thinking about all the things that we're uh, spewing forth like radioactive material here on this podcast. And you can subscribe uh, you can subscribe to our Better Call Saul specific feed on your podcast app of choice. You can subscribe to Post Show Recaps generally because there's so much happening. We've got the Better Call Saul podcast. Westworld is officially back. Joe Garfine and I released our recap of Season 3, Episode 1. We've got our first bonus Westworld podcast coming your way shortly with myself and the great robot scientist Christian Hubicki will be answering feedback from the listeners. Uh, Walking Dead, Jessica Lee and I are all over that. Jessica Lee and Mike Bloom are all over Star Trek Picard and Lost Down the Hatch is continuing. Speaking of collisions, that is the episode that we are talking about next. The Ana Lucia Cortez flashback episode from season two. Uh, and then there's the Curb Your Enthusiasm podcast, which is uh, surprisingly still alive uh, and is barreling towards a conclusion in its own right as well. So lots happening on post-show recaps to occupy your ears as uh, we're all looking for things to occupy our time these days. <sighs> We are, unfortunately, and uh, we're certainly thankful that people are taking the opportunity to choose us uh, in that respect, and we hope you are, if you're able, uh, sitting at home or distancing yourself uh, from social events and social scenarios as much as possible. Uh, there's not much else to say. I don't want to bring down sure, uh, anybody with the tenor of that of the podcast, but uh, podcasts are certainly something that I'm using a lot of at this point, so I hope everyone else is doing the same thing. Wash your hands and stay safe out there, everybody. Anything else, Josh? Uh, no, it would seem that the next episode of Better Call Saul is called Wexler v. Goodman. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we're going to take this to the next level Look, with, uh, with the, what's going. We're, at the, we're, we're, we're now at the halfway mark, right? Five episodes down, five more to go. Uh, feels like an appropriate time. And I believe it was episode six uh, in season three when it we was. when we had um, uh, chicanery, uh, when we had like yeah. the big... Uh, the big climax of of Jimmy V V Chuck. Uh, so it makes sense that this is where they like to place that kind of action. So could we could we see Jimmy and and Kim really coming at odds uh, in this upcoming episode? I think uh, certainly the the title suggests so. We'll be here to talk about it for sure. Uh, thanks everybody again for tuning into post show recaps, and we'll be back with coverage of Better Call Saul Wexler v McGill. Oh boy, it's not doesn't sound good, uh, but uh, we'll see where it goes. Thanks again, everybody. Take care. <laughs>